Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey y'all, welcome to Eco Chic, a podcast all about practical science and sustainability. My name is Laura and I'm a recent graduate with a master's degree in climate science and solutions. Eco Chic is a really fun place to talk about a lot of things like general climate change education or personal sustainability efforts. Things that are not necessarily common knowledge, but totally, totally should be. Every week we're coming at you with climate change information from a whole bunch of different angles, but also to sharing personal tips on how to be a more responsible citizen of the planet. This week on Eco Chic, I'm really excited to be joined by my good friend, Emerald McCormick. Emerald and I actually originally met because we both worked through the sustainability office of our campus and we both just graduated, which is really fun. But Emerald is a really awesome wealth of knowledge when it comes to climate change from a political standpoint. So she does mention in the podcast that she double majored in political science and environmental studies, which is a really cool crossroads. She spent a lot of time doing deep dives of research on equality and immigration and things of the sort around the world. And I'm so excited to just be sitting down and picking her brain a little bit about really, really important global topics when it comes to climate change. Today, we are specifically discussing refugees, terrorism, women's rights, and other very touchy subjects when it comes to the developing world and climate change. I do want to give a little preface. Um, Neither of us are like big political correspondents or anything like that, obviously. But we are just coming from a point of research. We're making a lot of generalizations, but also just talking about things um, as politically correct as we can. And we would really like to just share this information because we think that it's really important to just have in the central consciousness the issues that are surrounding other global conflicts, especially when it comes to climate change. A lot of the time, it's really easy to think that climate change is a personal issue. It's like, how is your property going to get affected by sea level rise or whatever it might be? Um, But there are other people who are impacted on a much more personal, serious scale, talking about um, food security, droughts, refugees, people losing their homes, things of the sort. So it's really important to just think a little bit more broadly about climate change. And I'm really excited to be opening up the conversation with Emerald. Emerald is a regular person. So I would like to offer if anyone is interested in getting in touch with her to please email me or send me a DM and I will put y'all in touch. Um, I will go ahead and have a couple of resources down in the show notes. But other than that, I hope you really enjoy this conversation with Emerald. Emerald, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm so excited to be hanging out with you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, For anyone who doesn't know you, anyone outside of NAU, 
can you go ahead and like introduce yourself? Just give a really brief synopsis of who you are and your expertise. Yeah, so I am a graduate now of Northern Arizona University with my degree in political science and environmental studies in sustainability. Um, I grew up in Montana and on the East Coast and then I've recently spent the past three and a half years here in Arizona working for the sustainability program on campus. Yeah, so Emerald is, I felt like a little bit of a local celebrity. I'm just like so thankful that I know you. No, you came to give a presentation in that internship class I took and I was like, oh my God, I can't believe Emerald's here. (laughs) No, I'm so thankful because you're so interesting from a lot of different angles, like in your expertise with political science, especially. And I was so excited to know that you were hanging around for winter break because I've been really wanting to talk to you on the podcast because you're such a great like female leader in the community, but you're also just so good at what you do. Like you're just such an expert in um, just all of your different like educational facets and then just making it really eloquent in talking to people. Thank you. So I wanted to talk today about a couple different things. Um, Climate refugees was something that is big on my mind because I mentioned it to someone a couple weeks ago and I feel like a lot of people don't know what a climate refugee is when I bring up the conversation. So I was hoping you can kind of break that down for us. Like what is a climate refugee? Definitely. So climate refugees are definitely one of those topics that hasn't been discussed too much in the media. We're really focused on refugees for political reasons, but if you break down why those political reasons are happening, um, why people are having to flee their countries or just flee a certain area within their country, um, a lot of that comes back to climate-related reasons. So you're looking at an increase in temperature, a decrease in drought, and people's crops are dying. The water is evaporating and their water source is no longer as easily accessible. The sea levels are rising and people's homes are being infiltrated by water. So these people are having to move out of their homeland in search of uh, viable cropland, in search of water, in search of a place that isn't underwater. So climate refugees are people searching for a place with a sustainable, livable environment. Um, And there can be climate refugees that have to leave their country entirely or those that are displaced internally um, having to move to different areas of the country. Okay, so internally would be like if you are living in South Florida, sea levels are rising and you decide to move elsewhere within the U.S. Exactly. Okay, and then... Externally would be like small island nations that are just affected by sea level rise. Exactly. Okay, cool. And then on that topic, are there any like hot things in the news right now that we should really be thinking about when it comes to climate refugees? Definitely. So a lot of people understand or are beginning to understand what's happening in Syria and the political problems that are occurring there. Um, But what is not talked about as often is kind of what caused or sparked a lot of the problems happening in Syria. And now I'm not downplaying any of what is happening between the government and the rebel forces. But if you look at the history of Syria, you had a lot of farmers on the outskirts of the country who had to move into the city because their crops were dying and there wasn't as much access to water because there were several, there's three large droughts over the past 15 years in Syria that just completely devastated the country. So all of those farmers were moving into the city and when they moved into the city, they didn't have as many job opportunities. Uh, The government wasn't helping them out to the extent that they wanted. And so that kind of bred rebellion 
which eventually, you know, played a part in the Syrian revolution. Oh, wow. I had no idea. Five, 15 years of, for three droughts is like pretty wild. That's a really short period of time. It's pretty significant. And it's those three droughts were felt throughout the entire Middle East. So you look at a lot of the problems that are happening throughout the Middle East and you can see the linkages to these droughts. So what's happening um, and happened in Iraq with the Islamic State a lot of their recruitment was based on um, people trying to escape climate change causes. Oh, can we talk a little bit about Iraq? Like, could you kind of um, give an overview of what that crisis is and how that ties into the drought? Right. So in uh, 2003-2004 um, was when the Islamic State kind of gained a lot of power back in Iraq. Um, and a lot of that was due to the s- several droughts that occurred there that occurred Um, at the same time in Syria and so at that time again all of those farmers were losing their crops because the rain was not coming and the temperatures were increasing and the Islamic State would move into these small little rural villages and offer a better life for those farmers if they joined the Islamic State and so a lot of those farmers had no choice that they had to feed their family and so they joined Islamic State. I'm shook. Wow, because that's like a big lifestyle change for an individual farmer. But also, if you are not able to produce the food that your country is relying on, that puts a lot of stress on other resources. Definitely. Like, when we think about climate refugees, we think about um, very much like drought, food, um, temperature increase, property values, things of the sort. So it's really interesting to think about how um, their resources are being strained, Mm -hmm. like as a country, food resources. Exactly. And then also just how you're changing individual lives, which is pretty wild. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, it can be pretty terrifying. Yeah, that's terrifying. And how does that kind of um, historically moving people into um, this more rebel lifestyle, how does that play into conflicts that we're looking at right now globally? A lot of those conflicts are fueled by people needing resources. Um, you look at what's happening in Yemen, in Syria, and Iraq. They just they don't have enough food to go around. And the root cause of that is, you know, the agriculture isn't being produced to the extent that's needed. Um, So, I mean, a lot of our conflicts happening in Africa, Iraq, South America, the Middle East, a lot of that can be traced back to climate change. That's pretty wild. And when it comes to how these rebel forces are impacting the rest of the world, Mm -hmm. um, when we talk about climate and terrorism, what should we be thinking about just as like a holistic theme? How are we thinking about like terrorism when it comes to climate change. Oh, definitely. Yeah. So I think we should be understanding that terrorism is definitely due to a group of people often wanting revenge, wanting to spread their eccentric idea of what their religion should be. But then looking at how climate change impacts that um, and how they're able to expand over an entire region they gain momentum by targeting specific groups of people and acting strategically with resources. Um, So we need to understand that climate change is not causing terrorism, but it's exacerbating the problems that are already occurring. Um, If you're looking at, you know, another example in Iraq was they didn't have enough water and the Islamic State knew it, so they went and took control of their largest dams there and prevented water from reaching the agricultural areas needed to produce most of their crops. Oh, wow. Or they went and took control of entire villages that were key for crops. 
and said, we won't give you any food until you give us a portion of your money. So it was making a problem that's already really difficult even more difficult to handle. Wow, that's pretty wild. I didn't really know about, um, I mean, like, I'm not by any means an expert in the Middle East, so I didn't really know about, like, individual um, cases of terrorism within a country, which I think is a really interesting point. Mm -hmm. Is there any other, like, big topics that you touched on on your paper that you want to, like, mention? Definitely. So I think another important part of this is looking at it through a gender lens, (gasps) um, because climate change is not just... It's not impacting men and women equally, and I think that's something that needs to be a focus, especially looking at how much our governments are run by men, and therefore women's issues are not a focus, typically, when it's 90% to 100% men. Um, And it's kind of devastating knowing just how much climate change is affecting women, Um, looking at, you know, women don't have the economic power to be able to rebuild their homes when it's devastated by a hurricane, which are you know occurring more frequently because of climate change. Or women are the ones that have to go and get the water. So they'll spend hours a day going and retrieving that water, and when that water source dries up, they have to go even farther. Also, women are typically the last to eat in developing world countries, and so if there's no food, or only a little bit for their families, they're gonna go hungry. And then, Also, with the whole problem of climate refugees, women are way more likely to be sexually assaulted or just um, have violence committed against them during, you know, the migration process. So it's a terrifying time for women in developing worlds when it comes to how much climate change will affect them in the future. Yeah, I'm really glad you brought that up because um, something that's always really stuck with me is I read a paper um, probably like five or six months ago, but it was about women and social mobility when it comes to climate change and how educating women and girls is one of our most powerful tools when it comes to combating climate change because once you are educating people and encouraging this social mobility, you are breaking a little bit of that gender imbalance. And um, once everyone kind of realizes that women's issues are human rights issues, we are a lot more likely to look at them from a more um, political perspective, Mm -hmm. in a sense. Yeah, definitely. And so a big part of this and how we're going to change it is education and then also incorporating women into climate action and adaptation plans. Um, because women are typically the ones that retrieve the water and spend the most time working the fields, so they have the deepest environmental knowledge in a lot of these developing world countries. And so their input into these climate action plans, figuring out how their communities are going to respond to climate change and prevent some of the worst devastation, is absolutely essential. And by incorporating them into these plans, they can also make sure to look out for women. So they can advocate for, you know, small microloans specifically for women or ensuring that women are able to actually own the land rather than have to pass it through, you know, their husbands and their sons and their brothers and things like that. Yeah. And I'm really glad you mentioned microloans and the idea of property rights for women in developing countries because I think that's a really hopeful um, turning point in a sense. And I was wondering if there's any other just like, Um, really positive solutions that we have to kind of combating this issue of gender imbalance because of climate change Um, and then kind of in turn looking at 
larger resource issues like we talked about with drought and crops and things of the sort. So be at, like, what is a microloan and are there any other like really great solutions that we have to empowering women in these developing countries? Yeah, so a microloan, correct me if this is wrong, it's just a small amount of money given out by the government or maybe someone in a developed world, you know, something under like $5,000 to a lot of times a woman in a developing country where that money means a lot more there and they're able to maybe start a business out of their home or purchase a small property front um, and able to actually make economic gains because so often women aren't allowed to control any of their money and they're also not allowed to own land. So by investing in women, we're able to not only support those women, but then allow other women to see that that's a possibility for themselves. And then those women that have those microloans can make money, pay off their loan and then invest in other women. And so it's like this beautiful like domino effect throughout an area, which is really amazing. Um, so that's definitely one way that we can try to improve women's status and um, economic mobility in an area. And then education is just another key area. Um, and it's not just broad education, but more narrow education on what climate change is and how it will affect them. Um, because if they're knowledgeable about that, they can begin investing uh, and figuring out how they're going to respond to climate change. So they realize, you know, when the droughts get more and more intense each year, that it's not going to get better and that maybe they can make uh, a decision to move to another place if that's the best opportunity for them. Yeah. And then that's really interesting just to tie it back to the idea of climate refugees because it's just like once you're giving people the knowledge that this is the situation for their land and for their water resources and um, how they should expect seasons to fluctuate with climate change. Mm -hmm. I think that's a really powerful tool in almost encouraging climate refugees. I don't know if that's necessarily the word for it, but just Mm -hmm. really um, empowering people to take control of their situation and move out of this kind of dead end environment that they're in. Mm -hmm. And I think it's also interesting to take note of what's happening right now with the global climate talks that are occurring between all of the countries in the world um, because they decided that developed and developing world countries will have the same standards of needing to focus on climate change, but developed world countries may begin working on climate change solutions now, and developing countries can begin working on it whenever they can. Okay. Um, And I think that is really difficult because developed worlds have so much money to be investing in climate change, mitigation, and adaptation technologies, and a lot of other countries that don't have a big purse can't be doing that. Um, And, you know, the United States stopped investing in the Green Revolving Fund that helped out developing world countries adapt to climate change. So, you know, we're no longer investing in drought-resistant crops or seawalls or helping people migrate. So... It's definitely something to take note of and watch and see how those talks are going to be affecting climate refugees, especially when we're not helping developing world countries and are not taking those refugees currently. Right. And I think that's a really great um, point that you brought up of 
mitigation of a developed country as compared to mitigation of a developing world country because I think a lot of the time when we talk about developing world countries how they are um, polluting their waterways or opting for fossil fuels as opposed to more renewable energy sources um, a lot of the time it's like a little bit hypocritical it's how can we expect them to invest themselves in all of these really um, sustainable quote-unquote solutions to development when we weren't really held to that standard and we weren't expected to do that and it's not really fair to expect that we were able to develop off coal and they're not Mm -hmm. um, in a sense so I think that is a really great just point to take um, just considering the idea that they don't have to think about mitigation until they're really ready as a country financially Mm -hmm. economically Um, I guess that's kind of the same thing, but economically, politically, whatever it might be. And then on the topic of mitigation, something that I thought about a lot over the summer, um, which I think I told you about, I was in a sustainability program through the University of Illinois at Chicago, and we went into a, a lower economic status community and just talked to them about their concerns when it comes to climate change. And a lot of our concerns would be like fuel resources, getting around transportation, things of the sort. And their concerns were more like, we don't really have any community um, morale. And for them, that was a climate change issue and a sustainability issue. So I guess comparing that to um, a more developed country, like a developed country going into a less developed country would be, um, you can't just give everyone solar panels and expect everything to work out fine. You have to really understand where the country is coming from and what their current state is and what they really want. Exactly. I think there's a huge problem with developed countries walking into other places and being like we know how to save you um that's absolutely not the way to go (laughs) which is why it's so important that these countries are creating their own climate action and adaptation plans because they know best how to mitigate and adapt to climate change based on their country but the developed world needs to be contributing money so that they can implement these plans because we are the ones that caused the majority of the climate change problems. We release the most amount of fossil fuels. So we need to make sure that we're not leaving countries that don't have as much money to the brunt of climate change. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And um, even on the idea of microloans, like we talked about earlier, like our American dollar goes a lot further in less developed countries. And we have a lot of power when it comes to what we choose to invest in and how we choose to um, spend that money. So whether it is through mitigation work or if it is going in and educating girls and educating um, homeowners about climate change and how it's affecting their particular properties, I think it's really important to realize that we do like our dollar does matter and you can really vote with your dollars. I think a lot of people don't realize that um, you might not necessarily feel like you have a big hand in whatever's happening in Syria or Iraq or whatever it might be, but um, when it comes to what companies you're choosing to support, it's really important to think about where their investments are going to. Yeah, most definitely. Yeah. Is there any like really good resources or um, political books, podcasts, whatever it might be that you listen to that you would like to suggest for anyone? Definitely. So I think a great book to start off with is uh, This Changes Everything by Naomi Klein. Um, it really talks about how our addiction to capitalism is affecting climate change. Um, and then there's actually an author in from NAU who wrote a book called Unstable Ground. His name is Alex Alvarez. He's a professor at NAU. And it talks about 
the connection between climate change and conflict. Um, and then, of course, just reading scholarly articles where they're diving into the connections is super important. Um, and then always, you know, I listen to the BBC Global News podcast and I'll do it like while I'm getting ready in the morning. So I get a little dose of news there. <laughs> and then just listening to that and realizing how climate change is affecting the news there. Yeah, really I think that's a really good point. I listen to um, The Daily by The New York Times. Definitely. That's like my first thing every morning. And mm-hmm. then if I have time, I'll listen to Up Next by NPR. Right. And a lot of the time their topics overlap. Mm-hmm. But I feel like The New York Times does a great job of pointing out climate issues throughout other stories. Mm-hmm. Um, if anyone's interested in that, that's like a really good one too. Yeah. Do you have any final thoughts that you want to leave everybody with? Um, just always look at the deeper cause of what's happening um, and try to read articles and books and news stories from more than just a Western perspective because they don't always dig into the deeper reasonings for why things are occurring because a lot of times people don't talk about how climate change is affecting the Syrian revolution. Um, so just dig deeper and see those underlying causes and then always look through a gendered lens because typically women are overlooked so try and figure that out look into it yeah i think that's a really good point i'm glad that you brought up the idea of women and climate change because that's something that i think about all the time especially just like sorry i know that i just like sounded like i was gonna wrap up but i have like a final (laughs) thought the idea of family planning and climate change is such a big issue that i think about all the time just the idea of um, empowering women that they don't necessarily need to have six or eight babies if they Mm want to have two that's fine and they want to focus the rest of their time on their crops and whatever it might be i think like the idea of family planning is also really important and um just eco-feminism too which i feel like that's so up your alley it's just like the idea that women are very often mirrored in the way that we treat the environment as a society so Mm -hmm. um we all just need to be thinking a little bit deeper about how these climate issues are not necessarily affecting just the western world or just our political state or whatever it might be um but just how it's affecting different groups of people definitely and on that note of ecofeminism looking into the feminist writers that have been around since before the transcendentalists that we like to quote so much and they do have beautiful quotes and they had beautiful connections to land like Ralph Waldo Emerson and uh, Thoreau and uh, John Muir but there are so many women that we have overlooked throughout our history that have had the most glorious connections to nature and so I think we need to you know acknowledge those writers and those native writers the indigenous women that have worked with the land far before colonialists got here and decided that they saw God in nature. Yeah, I think that's such a good point. And that's just such a, like, just a really positive thing to end off with. Thank you so much for hanging out tonight and just coming out and talking. I'm just like, I love picking your brain about so many different things. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much for having me. I hope y'all enjoyed that conversation with Emerald. I know that I'm personally really enlightened and I was able to continue talking to her long afterwards, just picking her brain a little bit about more of the work she's done and more of the things where she sees climate change and advocacy work going in the future. So that was a lot of fun for me. I hope you enjoyed it. Let me know if you did enjoy it because I would love to continue to bring on more politically minded people or economic people or policy people to talk about climate change. So let me know if you enjoy this kind of content because I feel like it's a lot of fun and pretty different. It's not necessarily something that we're talking about every single day. 
At the end of every episode of Eco Chic, I like to answer a question that I've received via email or via DM. Um, and if you would like to ask a question pertaining to science or sustainability or anything of the sort, my links are always down below. I'm at Lori e. Diaz on Instagram and also at Eco Chic Podcast. If you're interested in checking out the podcast Instagram page, or you can send me an email through my website, which is lauraediaz.com. Diaz is D-I-E-Z. And I always feel like I should spell it out for people because it's not a super common spelling. But if you're ever curious, it's always down in the show notes. Anyway, today's question actually was asked a couple times. Um, this last week on Instagram, I've been sharing the process of myself moving apartments. And I'm very, very thankful to have had my brother here in town to help me move. And it's been a really wild adventure, honestly, this last week moving because I've never lived totally, totally by myself. Like this last summer, I was by myself for four or five months, but it was like a dual apartment. It was pre-furnished and it was something that it was more of like a student housing sort of like apartment situation. So this is the first time that I'm like furnishing my own place, living totally alone all the time. And there's a lot of things that I always like to share, like um, a low impact, zero waste pantry, just shopping in bulk, making sure that my greens in the fridge are always in jars, things of the sort. But I got a couple questions this week about how I was making my move and furnishing my apartment as low impact or zero waste as possible. So I think this is a really interesting question to talk about because I think this is a fun time to talk about what's realistic and making sure that you are doing what works for you when it comes to sustainability. So if I was truly living a totally zero waste lifestyle, totally in quotes, of course, but if I was living as zero waste as possible, I would only choose to purchase furniture and purchase my mattresses, purchase clothing, purchase other decor things secondhand. I should not be buying anything new. I should be taking things out of the waste stream. I would like to go ahead and say that I don't live in like a super tiny town, but I live in a relatively small town. I live in Flagstaff, Arizona. It's like an hour south of the Grand Canyon. And if that is any indication of what the town is, it's not like I have a whole lot of options when it comes to bulk stores. We have a Goodwill and we have a Savers. I didn't mean bulk stores. I'm sorry. I meant secondhand. And we have a couple of local thrift shops. But it was really, really hard for me to like find anything that really worked for me. So um, a lot of the furniture that I did buy, I did actually buy new. So my bed frame is brand new and I bought it online and it came in a cardboard box, which I recycled, but it also came in styrofoam. And that was something that I couldn't really avoid because... I didn't actually have a bed frame online that I could find within a reasonable distance. I tried the Facebook marketplace and a lot of the bed frames that I found that like really fit what I was looking for were hours away driving. And to me, it's just as much of a carbon footprint to drive down a mountain and down the state of Arizona to pick up a bed frame three or four hours away to also just bring it right back. So the gasoline associated with that doesn't necessarily cancel out the fact that I am taking something out of the waste stream. So um, basically the point of the story is A lot of the low impact or zero waste ideals that I've been carrying with me were really challenging this week. Um, So I'm really grateful that people asked me about how I'm making this move as zero waste as possible. I'm doing what I can, but honestly, I also have to like live within my limits and like realize that my resources are limited based on where I live. My resources are limited based on the amount of time I have, like I'm going to be honest here, I'm totally capable, but I do not want to put large furniture together by myself. So I was like, what can I get done while my brother is here to help me out? So that's also a limiting resource, um, just help and assistance and thinking about straining other resources. So picking, choosing something new, like before picking something secondhand, because picking something secondhand has gasoline emissions associated with it, a carbon footprint 
um, a water footprint, you know, thinking about things like a shower head. It was better for me to buy a brand new shower head than stick with the shower head that my apartment came with because it's low flow. So um, it ends up saving a lot of water long term, even though it's a new shower head. And in theory, if I was living zero waste, I should work with everything I have until it's like totally unusable. So I just want to kind of point out the fact that, yeah, it's this was really a challenging time for me, the move to acknowledge that um, sustainability is about doing what you can. And I'm really, really proud to say that I recognized my limits and I tried and I collected what I could from secondhand sources and from ethically made sources from sustainably sourced resources, whatever I could find. But ultimately this move, making it sustainable, was making it something that worked for me. And I'm really, really proud to say that. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, whatever it might be, if you have anything that you'd really like to hear on the podcast, I would love, love, love to chat with you. Again, via DM, which is at Laura Ediaz, or at EcoChic Podcast, or you could send me an email via my website, lauraedias.com. I hope you guys are all having a really, really great holiday season thus far. I wanted to follow up with an announcement that I made last week. Normally, episodes of EcoChic come out on Tuesday, but the next two Tuesdays will be Christmas Day and New Year's Day. So what we're doing instead is coming out with episodes on Thursdays for that week. And I hope that works for you. But if not, you can go back and you have something like 35, 36 other episodes to listen to, which I hope is a lot of fun for you if you're like sitting on a plane or driving somewhere um, and you want to get a little bit of information in a casual conversation. I hope that's what Ego Sheet can do for you. I hope you have a great holiday season and I will see you guys next week. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.